Hi, this is Bron Burton and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Three minutes past nine. You are tuned to 102.73 Triple R. Maybe you're listening via rrr.org.au. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. Aren't we all that right now? My name's Bron Burton. And I'm Brett Ditchfield. Hey, Brett. How are you, Bron? Oh, it's nice to have you here. Well, it feels like we're the only two people in the world like yeah. left. It's kind of a bit scary like that. But, um, I don't know. It's the the power of radio too, you know, like we're bringing everyone together. So if you're self-isolating, at least you're still listening to us. That's right. And I have been all week and I have never appreciated Triple R more than I do right now. Oh, been wonderful, wonderful broadcasting. And um, thank you from me as a listener and a subscriber to every Triple R broadcaster for doing what they do. None more so than Tim Thorpe. Thank you so much, Tim. Um, he's just finished his sixth hour of community broadcasting throughout the weekend. And uh, Andrew Minger for his wonderful soulful bits with Mavis Staples this morning. That was really beautiful too. It was, so Thank yes. you, Tim. And thanks for the water bracket too, a little bracket of water songs around 8.30, so uh, maybe a bit later. So you can catch Tim next Saturday at 6am for more Vital Bits. On today's program, we are pushing on. We're kicking off with you, Brett. We have a, um, a regular segment with you, Cabin Boy Diaries. And, um, yeah, well, Cabin Fever's setting in for a lot of us, I think. Well, I did want to load the boat up and just uh, with supplies and just head off to Tassie and all that. So uh, maybe 14 days at sea, that would kind of get me over the uh, self-isolation. Yeah. Sounded good till I realised then I'd be stuck on a small boat. 
somewhere off the coast of Tasmania for the you know for maybe the rest of the year. So I'm just self isolating at home. It's a good idea that nice. way. Nice. <laughs> Does your boat have a name? Uh, Magic. Oh, oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. So um, and I'm going to be talking about that for the Cabin Boy Diaries about well the connotations of the word yacht because uh. A lot of people put on a posh accent when they say, oh, a yacht. So uh, so where that's come from, there's a bit of history to the word yacht. So we'll, we'll explore oh, cool. that in the Cabin Boy Diaries. Excellent. Really looking forward to hearing more about that then. We're then going to cross to – we are actually crossing all over Australia, and I mean that literally today, um, starting off with Mornington Peninsula. So, you know, geographically not <laughs> that far from here in Brunswick. We're going to be speaking with AJ about the spider crabs um, – which are on their way. We don't know when they're going to arrive, but there is a growing campaign to protect them after what happened last year, which was a bit of a stacks on, not of the spider crabs. Well, yes, of the spider crabs, but um, I guess more. Cabin boy, over to you. Yes, I'm sitting here. Um, We're exploring what the word yacht means and where it's come from. So the etymology, what, what, what did I text you? The Entomology, entomology, which is the study of insects. (laughs) So I'm going to start off with, this is part of a letter published in the 1906 issue of Yachting Monthly. And the subject of the letter was, why yachting is not more popular. Mm. Uh, In the minds of some people, the word yacht conjures up a vision of social superiority to which they can never aspire. So that's my thing about, you know, do you own a yacht or do you own a boat? I tend to go a boat because yacht has that. You know, that social superiority kind of thing. You think Thurston Howe the third? Well, kind of in a way. But then I looked back to what actually where yacht comes from. And it comes from the Dutch meaning to hurry or hunt. So it's from Dutch. Oh, okay. So hence we've got all those extra letters where three would really suffice to expel yachts. So um, now it originally referred to light, fast sailing vessels that the Dutch Navy use, used to pursue pirates. Then the Dutch people kind of, I think they must have got richer or their economy thrived because a lot of people, they were the first people generally acknowledged to go sailing for pleasure. So in the past, think early 1400s, 1500s, thousands of boats around, but no one did it for pleasure. Mm. So no one had the free time or the wealth. But in the early 1600s, we had the English Civil War. Not we, but they did. Uh, and Charles II was exiled to the Netherlands. And there he found out about yachting. So uh, he took it up. Uh, and once he came back to England and got on the English throne, he got into yachting in a very, very big way. He huh. had over 25 yachts over the years. Um, now, when I say yachts, these were huge, fully paid crew. He would most likely come on with his blazer drinking uh, rum from a crystal kind of glass and, you know, barking orders out. So, uh, And I think they used to race against other me- members of the aristocracy. So it was a rich person's sport there and then. Mm. Um, but the actual word yacht means any sail or power vessel used for pleasure or personal use. So it's not actually – doesn't mean sail. Okay. So that's where, like, the Queen's Yacht um, Britannia – Ah, that's called a yacht because it's for personal or pleasure. So really, yeah. So does that mean any tinny that's out there? Well, is technically a yacht. Oh, I see. If someone's going out there fishing on the weekend. I th- well, see, that's where the uh, social superiority kicks in. It's like, oh no, <laughs> of course not. <laughs> wow. Um, well, see, that's kind of a work boat, though. Really, a tinny or a fishing boat. See, is a work boat kind of you going out fishing and working kind of thing so uh, 
technically, but I think there may be a length limit too. Okay. So, and I think a yacht technically also is enclosed, so it's got a cabin. Yeah. So that kind of rules out tinnies. Okay. So your giant inflatable swan. Not quite. Right. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily Because <laughs> that's mean, pure pleasure. Well, it is. Well, it is pleasure too. But, but so it's come across as... Yachting is a rich person's sport, and it's not really. Thousands of people own small yachts throughout the world, and often you'll see those big kind of speedboats that they go fishing in are worth far more than mm. the yachts. So uh, that's but, right. But that kind of get you know they get a break there. So, and also the America's Cup doesn't help too. That's a lot of which rich people just swanning around and spending thousands and or millions and millions of uh, dollars on uh, on yachting. So mm. that's that, and. Just another interesting thing is um, my boat club, and it's called a boat club, is the Western Beach Boat Club. So hi to the guys down there. But just up the road from the Western Beach Boat Club is the Royal Geelong Yacht Club. Okay. And they are worlds apart. Yeah. You know, so again, it's got royal and it's got yacht in it, so hence the superiority. Whereas we down at the Western Beach Boat Club, we're the knock around, you know, kind of, so... But at the end of the day, you're doing the same thing, aren't you? We're doing the same thing, so yeah. Just at a different... In a different way. And even the word to go yachting sounds just not right. If you go sailing, it sounds like you're active and you're actually, you know, trimming the sails and doing things. To go yachting, you're just poncing around. <laughs> so do you notice this amongst your your sailing networks, that people choose one term over another for whatever reason? Yeah, well, kind of personally, if someone says, you know, oh, do you, you know, do you own a boat? Or, you know, do you go sailing? I said, yeah, yeah, I own a boat. I don't say I own a yacht. Yeah. And it's, I don't know why, and I've tried to say yacht, but I, I stumble across it. It's, yeah. you know, that working class background, it's hard to say, you know, <laughs> yacht. So, yeah, but, but it is, I, I do stumble with it. So I say, yeah, I own a boat. Yeah. It's got sails. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a yacht. Yeah, it's a yacht. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, it's a funny thing, that. So, so yes, yacht. That's kind That's of cool. it. It comes with a little, a bit of baggage there, I think. Yeah, Charles so, yeah. II. Yeah, Charles II. Yeah, English Civil War. So back in the early 1600s. So, yeah, right. he kind of kicked the yachting off. So, damn those English. Hmm. The boating was happening a long time before then. Oh, well and truly. So, yeah. So, yeah. Don't get out in your yacht at the moment, so, but uh, once this is all over, yeah, get back out in your yacht. Or your boat. Or your boat. Yeah, no <laughs> yacht. I'm going yacht. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Brett. Uh, pleasure, Bron. You can go back to your cabin now. No, thanks for that. <laughs> I'll just close the hatch. <laughs> 25 past nine. This is Radio Maranoa, and in just a moment we're going to be speaking with AJ uh, about the incoming spider crabs. And we are now crossing down to the Mornington Peninsula to speak with AJ. Good morning, AJ. Good morning, Bron. Brett, how is everyone doing today? We're doing okay. How about you? What's happening down on the Ninch? Well, there are some people doing the right thing and there are some people doing the wrong thing. Yeah, I was really hoping that wasn't going to be what you were going to say. We were hoping uh, the answer to the question about how have the beaches been this weekend, we were hoping you were going to say empty, but is that not the case? No, unfortunately not. And, well, to the risk of everyone else, unfortunately, the people still think that uh, it is okay to put themselves in front of the general community and put us all at risk, which is a shame because everyone's trying to still have a resemblance of their previous life. 
as we uh, go through these major changes. But uh, for the moment, just please stay home at least for the next month or so until we uh, until we can well flatten this curve, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, this time last week we were um, talking about, you know, projecting what was going to happen in the week ahead and we were really hoping that people were just going to stay home. And the issue then, um, we were talking with Rob up in Browley about people bringing their own supplies at the very least, you know, not not heading off to the beach for the weekend and, and you know, hitting, hitting your local supermarkets and, um, you know, stripping the shelves of the things that you guys need because that's where you live. Uh, have you had to venture out to the supermarket? Is that sort of going on there as well, or you um, have you been pretty much just staying inside? Um, well, apart from just the bare necessities, um, going to uh, to the shops to. Um you know, just like most people to top up, certainly don't need any TP. Uh, you can't get any anyway. Yeah. But um, I, it is really important, I think, is to keep it local um, yeah. and to not really venture out and risk spreading it. What's the point in, uh, in putting others at risk? Like this time last week, we did talk and we were talking about the idea of saying, you know, perhaps we could still experience some of our marine environments. Uh, diving, diving being somewhat semi-distant, potentially solo sort of stuff. Um, that uh, Now things have changed so quickly, right to the point where we've actually closed our operations as well and um, have to bunk it down and, and wait this out. Exactly right, and that's that's what this is all about. And I thought that you um, you mentioned during the week um, to me when we were texting each other about keeping the eyes on the horizon so that you kind of don't feel seasick, which is, I think, a perfect mm-hmm. analogy to, to where we're at now and where we're heading is just stay focused on the horizon and don't get all caught up in the here and now. It's very easy to do. We're all doing it. Everyone's doing it. But just... Eyes on the horizon. That's that's going to be my mantra until this thing's all over with. It's such a great thing, and as well, you know what? We're all stuck at home, right? And we can't measure out. So to keep our sanity, listening to you guys and Radio Marinara and the like and the Triple R team has has come to the point now. We're like we're looking forward to it. <laughs> we need that radio content, and we really appreciate you guys still putting it on. Yeah, likewise, um, in, with other broadcasters as well, but even just knowing that, that you're doing what you need to do as well, this is such a massive community effort and like really seriously preaching to the converted here, this is what Triple R has always been about is community effort and you know, I feel some comfort in knowing that what we do here each week is what we, we're kind of really being, we're setting the bar for what everyone else needs to do as well. Speaking of which, let's talk about spider crabs for a minute. Sure thing. Our wonderful eight-legged creatures. <laughs> well, nearly a couple of couple of claws in there too. So they don't know. So, they don't know about coronavirus. They're kind of underwater, doing what they always do. And on the surface, you and wonderful people like you are doing what you can to try and make sure that what happened last year doesn't happen again. This is true. Um, the, the events of 2019 were, were pretty gut-wrenching, pretty emotional. And you used that analogy before: shooting fish in the barrel. That's not fun for anyone. Um, except for the uh, twisted minds that are doing it, really. So for the last year, as you know, we've created the Spider Crab Alliance and have petitioned fisheries to get this changed. And we've followed some really um, responsible practices as far as approaching the fisheries and and doing things the right way. And we did a lot of the work for them already um, to the point now where um, we are going to need some help um, those who'd like a bit of an update as to where we are now, I believe Wednesday we published uh, an update on the Spider Crab Alliance page of a bit of a report, a chronological report of what's happened to date and the major things and, and summaries of meetings. So I'd employ everyone to go there and have a look and uh, and then see whether they can how they can help us from here. But the crabs are here. They're starting to have little pocket reports from uh, popping up here and there on the peninsula. Um, 
And there is a little bit of a blessing in disguise here about no one's able to go down to the piers and fish them yet. Um, so maybe they will catch a break. At the same time, we can't go down there and monitor them and, and see whether the events of 2019 were damaging to any of the localised populations. Um, so now is the time to really put this in place, some protections in place, so that come 2021, we're not starting from scratch and we're not reigniting uh, those, um, those potential confrontations and personal property damage and things like that that were happening in 2019. Are you staying in touch with fisheries over this, AJ? Yeah, well, we met with them early March. Um, they have since released a bit of a uh, fact sheet up online about the spider crabs in general and confirmed the current fishing arrangements. Um, outside that, um, there's, well, I'm kind of stuck, to be honest. I really don't know what to do next. Mm. Um, we've, we've tried to do everything the right way and we've, the door's just literally been shut. Not at the door, like the shutters, the blast doors, everything's come down on us, um, which is extremely disappointing. I guess, um, I guess all we can do from here is just if you do live down that way, don't go down that way, but if you live down that way and you start to see um, activity starting to spring up with people, you know, sneaking out there and, and, um, and taking the crabs is just to report it in as quickly as you can. And, uh, and see if we can, again, you know, run this community effort to, um, to try and protect these amazing little creatures. That's right. The fisheries hotline is still operational, the one through fish. So any of the illegal fishing activity you may witness, you know, as you're going to and from the supermarket, for example, if you pop your head out the window and you're seeing people on the pier when the piers are closed, well, that's a good thing to uh, to call up. At the same time as the spider crabs, it's going to be um, super relative this year. And no doubt, I think the fisheries officers who are going to be out and about and making sure everyone's compliant at the same time will be keeping an eye on this, uh, hopefully more than ever. I do believe they were trying to maybe to collect some uh, demand data, so to speak, so how many people are interested in shooting fish in a barrel um, and then and using that information to potentially look at uh, changes. But we have an enormous amount of um, evidence and information from the general community, both local and global, that want to see some change. And we've got zero evidence on the other side or any um, de defence to the ban. Mm. So we don't understand what's the problem. Uh, now's the perfect opportunity for VFA to put their hand up and say, right, let's be proactive for a change instead of reactive uh, and, and start leading the way forward for fisheries management. Fantastic. We're going to leave it there, AJ, but we will keep sure. in touch with you in the weeks ahead and, um, and really stay on top of this one. And like you said, this is the time to be proactive with this because the people who are going to go down there and do what they want, they're not going to listen to nice, gentle messages. They're going to need to hear it. <laughs> Hear it uh, in, a, in a really sort of super strong way. All right. Thanks so much. That's right. That's no worries. Hey, um, now that we're kind of loosening up the term yacht. <laughs> yes. If I, if I put some um, stickers of some sails on the side of my motorbike, can I say I go out yachting? Well, see, you weren't listening. You don't need sails <laughs> as long as you're using it for pleasure. And I'm sure you're using it for pleasure. Sweet. Now I've got a yacht. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thanks, AJ. Sweet. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Bye. You too. Catch you soon. AJ there. Now, plastic is the largest pollution polluter of our oceans, mostly coming from the land. It impacts hundreds of thousands of marine species, including sea turtles, which all too often die after ingesting plastic or becoming entangled in plastic debris in the ocean. And despite our knowledge of how plastic obstructs and impacts turtles' digestive systems, just how prevalent they are and how they impact turtle populations is still not well understood. Professor Ellen Ariel is looking at exactly these questions, working with her team in Townsville at James Cook University 
University to investigate and analyse the prevalence of plastic in the guts of stranded sea turtles. Melbourne-based artist Reka Kumi recently discovered the work being done by Professor Ariel's group and passionate about sea turtles, she decided to reach out and offer some help. To tell us about this great partnership and what you can do to help as well, we now cross to Townsville to speak with Professor Ellen Ariel from James Cook University. Ellen, are you there? Good morning. And here in Melbourne via Skype, we welcome artist Reka Kumi. Reka, are you there? I am, yes. Good morning. Morning. Fabulous to have you both. Hey, this is very exciting for us. This is a uh, a Radio Marinara first, having a double interview in two separate locations, in fact, two separate states via two separate channels. So Mm -hmm. thanks so much to both of you for doing this with us. You're welcome. It's a new reality. It is indeed. Um, I thought, uh, and congratulations to you both on this great partnership. I thought maybe we might start with uh, you, Ellen. Um, Now, you head up a sea turtle research group in Townsville at James Cook University. Can you tell us a little bit about your group and what you do? Yes, I can. Um, My group here at James Cook University is working with turtle health research. It's ranged from anything to from identifying moral diseases to assessing population health and how to maintain welfare for turtles that are temporarily in captivity. And we are also becoming more interested in how the environment is affecting the health of turtles and that has left us onto, left us onto the path of looking at the role of plastic pollution in our ocean and also collaborating across several disciplines. How many species of sea turtles do we know exist, Ellen, and are they all equally vulnerable to the impacts of sea plastics? In the world, globally, there are seven species, and we're very lucky to have seven, six of them here in Australian waters. I think that there probably would be a difference in um, their um, access to plastics because of their different feeding habits. Um, but some of them are more cryptic than others and very rare, so we're only working on the most common ones, the green sea turtles. And uh, up where you are, uh, up in um, Townsville, and with the research that you do, you're saying you mostly work with green sea turtles. How many species sort of would be in that northern part of eastern Australia? I'd say say all of them, except that it's very um, rare that we see uh, some of them because they have cryptic habits and they they feed in deep waters and the, the leatherback turtles are very... Very rare in this region. So we mostly see hawksbills and loggerheads and and greens. Now, I understand there's three main lines of research that you and your group does. Can you talk us through those lines of research briefly? Uh, yes, I, I would prefer to talk about the, the plastics. We, we work with microorganisms, but the, the plastic uh, is um, the most important for, for now, I think. And we usually up signs by asking questions and the overarching question is of course what is the plastic doing to the turtles and worst case scenario is as you mentioned is entanglement or or death by uh, gut impaction where the plastic is not passing through the turtles um but uh, also important is um the, the less obvious ones where we're looking at microplastics and how they're leaching dangerous compounds into the turtles as they're passing through the gut and that you know, gives rise to two new questions. One is how long does the plastic take to pass through the, the gut of the turtle? And two, how much microplastic is actually in the turtles in our region? So to address the first one, how long does it stay inside um, the gut? We came up with what we thought was a very uh, elegant and um, 
and um, organic uh, material um, approach. We, um, we've known for a long time that turtles love green peas and they actually get them as treats when they're in captivity and, and um, they also love corn kernels. Um, but uh, corn kernels are um, pass, not really digested by the turtles, so they, they pass through, and so what's the point of that? Um, so we tend to avoid it. But in, in this case, this little fact meant that we could design a, an experiment where we would feed corn kernels to the turtles and then wait for them to come out at the other end, and that would give us an idea of, um, of um, the passage time, and we thought that was... A very very simple experiment but nothing is ever simple and what we discovered during our pilot project was that the turtles actually like to turn around and and eat their own poo which is <laughs> which is not very attractive right um, but uh, shouldn't be anybody's business except when we found the corn kernels we wouldn't know if it was the first or the second time that us because do they stay completely intact? So it's not even that they're partially digested the first, the first or the second time round. Well, I don't know if you've ever eaten corn and and realised um, not re-eaten it. No, I don't think we need to go there. But it doesn't seem very digested and quite uh, resistant to digestion. And so what we had to do was to create, be very innovative, and create. A double floor, so the poop would fall below the area where the turtle was swimming, and then you could siphon it out with a large team of volunteers, and then watch out the poo and, and count the corn kernels, and and so it went okay in the end. Reiko, I'm keen to come to you now and um, and speak with you about yourself and your style of art, and and how you sort of ended up connecting with the work that Ellen and her group are doing. Yes, so. Um... Well, the, uh, the the artwork that I'm doing at the moment is more representational, so I'm focused on creating something with a craft of a representational focus. <clears throat> and I only really started doing, um, really started focusing on my artwork uh, last year in July, um, and actually painted this in May 2019. Um, and it was more about the fact that, you know, coming here to Australia, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm originally from the UK, um, coming here to Australia, just really being inspired by the landscape and the seascapes around us um, and wanting to paint something um, like the sea turtle with the, um, with the seascape was just something I wanted to do. And really it kind of came to the fact that this, this year we actually, at the, at the moment, have an exhibition on called True Form where me and five other artists are, are together um, exhibiting our work at Black Spot Gallery down in Mornington, which unfortunately, as as long as as along with um, many other galleries, um, have had to close um, because of the situation right now. So, um, one of the things as part of that exhibition was um, thinking about um, my my own work and and looking at the sea turtle. You know, I really looked at that and thought, well, the sea turtle has really become such a symbol of um, you know the, the 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 troubles that the sea life are facing at the moment with plastics in our ocean, and you know watching uh, programs like a plastic ocean, which are highlighting the the issues that 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 sea life are actually facing right now. Um, I I really wanted to 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 look at that and look at my artwork and think, well, you know, because this is such a symbol for 
for the, the troubles that sea life is going through at the moment. You know, how can we actually help? Um, how can we actually help? And so it's just a case of researching online and finding um, a, a, a organization that was really doing some research and helping helping marine animals. And, and I stumbled upon Sea Turtle Foundation who uh, are working with, with Ellen and her team doing this research and really talk to them about, you know, how we could help and if there was a specific research project that we can help with. And I'm very happy that we, we found that with Ellen and, and we're contributing to that with the sales of both the original artwork and also the prints. It's a beautiful piece of art and we um, have a, an image of it on our Facebook page uh, for this week's program and it was set oh, to be, great. as you're saying, it's set to be part of the True Form exhibition at Black Spot Studio in Mornington uh, but it's now an on, it's still it's still running, it's just now that it's moved to online. How many prints do you have for sale, Reka? Yeah, yes, it has moved online. Um, at the moment we have uh, 90, 95, I have uh, 50 limited edition prints available so they're limited edition which means um you know once this this lot of 50 has gone um no more will be printed and they're, they're printed on archival fine art paper as well which means they will last a very long time so they're, they're high quality prints and um back to you ellen i was just wondering what what will your group do with money raised through the donations from the sales of these prints is it just will it extend the research that you're doing It'll help us answer the second question is how much um, plastic is in the gut content of the turtles in our region, region where we uh, investigate the turtles that have stranded and uh, analyse their gut content because you can't find the microplastics by the naked eye. Uh, so we need to have uh, laboratory analysis and reagents to actually do that. So we're very grateful for the opportunity to go into this part of the study with Rika's uh, generosity. And um, more importantly, probably, the big picture is that uh, there's an opportunity to spread awareness about plastics and hopefully this will make people think about how they approach single-use plastics in their daily lives. That's really fantastic. And, look, thank you both um, for being available to speak about this this morning and congratulations on this wonderful partnership that you have. Um, I have uh, We've already put some details up on our Facebook page. Uh, if you go into Facebook, just look for Radio Marinara. It's pretty easy to find. And um, for, I'll just read out the uh, addresses here or if you want to go directly to there. For more information, to look at the work that Ellen's group is doing, turtlehealthresearch.org. Um, and for Raker's artwork is uh, Raker Kermi dot com um and i as i said that's all up on our facebook page already thank you so much to both of you for being available and and for being part of this um for this chat with us we're we're really grateful and um we'll be in touch with both of you sometime down the track to talk more about the great work that you do great thank you very much Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye for now. Been speaking with uh, Professor Ellen Ariel in Townsville at James Cook University and Melbourne-based artist Rekha Kermi. It's seven minutes to ten. This is Radio Marinara here on 3 Triple R. Now, even to the most passionate and rusted-on microbiologist, there's something alluring and awe-inspiring about a whale, particularly if you're lucky enough to see one in its natural habitat. Despite being the largest marine mammal on the planet, whales often end up being the most elusive to study. Whale, Wade Hughes is a 
multi-award winning nature photographer who along with his partner Robin spent 13 years looking for whales which is the title of their stunning new uh, photography book that captures images and stories of their quest to document the most charismatic of the ocean's charismatic megafauna. To tell us about his wonderful new book we're now crossing to Perth with apologies for the early alarm call to speak with Australian Geographic photographer Wade Hughes. Good morning Wade, thanks for getting up so early and welcome to Triple R. Oh, good morning, Brian. Thank you for taking the time to call. Oh, no, it's wonderful. Um, look, this is an absolutely stunning book. Uh, congratulations to both you and to Robin. What got oh, you both in? You. What got you into whale photography? Um, curiosity originally. Um, there's a bit more to it than, than that, though. We, uh, we've been diving together for a bit over 40 years or so and thought we might go looking for something different, wrote around the world to see if there was anywhere where we could legally get in the water with um, whales of any type, really. But um, the Azores was the only response that we got. And because we had some um, credentials in terms of writing and publishing, photographing natural history, we were able to get a permit. So we got in the water the first time in 2005, and it was to be a once-off thing, really, but... I said there was a bit more to it. When, when we came back from that uh, 2005 trip, we were living in the United States at the time, but um, I was diagnosed with a fairly serious illness and I had to undergo some surgery. And during convalescence, uh, I'd come back in 2005 and thought that was my last time in the water and had really enjoyed it a lot, meeting some whales. We lucked out and got some really good encounters. But... After the 2005 expedition, um, this diagnosis came along, surgery came along, and I thought it was all over. But I started to think then that, no, no, that was not my last time in the water. And I imagined that the whales were calling me back. There was, there was only one place I could think of that, that would really prove to myself that my time in the water was not over, and that was getting back in exactly where I got out the last time. So we went back to the Azores, and that's where the hook really got set. Mm. The, um, the fascination with these animals just grew and grew. And, uh, well, we've, uh, we've done 10 expeditions to the Azores now and uh, a number of others to, uh, to pursue other types of whales, but our, our real interest is in, uh, in sperm whales. Did you find it hard to stop? Because, um, as I mentioned, 13 years and, uh, and more than 10 expeditions to document everything that you did. And you've got six different species in the book as well. So sperm whales, there's big focus on sperm whale, um, humpbacks, fin whales, orcas, short fin pilot whales and false killer whales. Did, yeah. did you just want to keep going forever? Or where did you, when did you sort of get to an end point? Well, I'm not sure we have. Um, <laughs> the, um, because it, it is fascinating stuff. You're, you know, the very environment that you're working in with whales is the open ocean by definition. And to be out there alone with you know, a whale or a number of whales when you're just surrounded by what I like, you know, think of as the colossal circumferences of nature, there's nothing on the horizon usually except maybe the boat that's drifted away because we want the boat to go away from us when we're in the water. We don't want the whales disturbed. So there's nothing overhead except the sky. And there's nothing underneath except deep water, abyssal water, you know, a thousand metres deep, a bit more sometimes. And, and you're there. And it's, that's addictive. That, that feeling alone is addictive. And then getting to understand or build some level of, of crude understanding, because there's so much about these animals that we don't know, but to be there alone and 
observing and photographing these animals, that's that's very difficult to say that um, it's over. So, you know, so we haven't stopped. The um, the book though sort of bookends a um, a collection of work, a body of work that uh, we thought we had a very successful exhibition in um, in Fremantle in the Cadogo Art House, and we thought the book would be a way to bring more information to the surface. And it seemed after putting together a body of work for an exhibition and being pretty happy with with those fine art prints, it seemed the right thing to do to uh, to put a book together with the contextual images and and more explanations of, of what we'd observed and what what others of you know, scientists have commented on after seeing our pictures. Um, it's pretty to bring that awareness to the surface. It's quite amazing reading the accompanying text uh, that really does bring you into the experience of getting the photo and as I've been reading it and looking at the images, really understand what you've experienced as you've been there and ultimately taken the photo. Um, early on in the book you're talking about coming face to face with a bull sperm whale and having him eye you off and there's this fabulous image of just the eye just looking straight at you. What was that experience like? Um, I think I was probably making noises that only dogs could hear at that point. Um, but it's when you realise that the um, the world's largest toothed predator has acknowledged your presence by looking into your eye, and then has come moving very slowly, inexorably slowly, but continuously towards you until it's close enough to touch, which I did not. But it was it was profound, and I don't know anybody, Brian, who's actually looked into the eye of a whale of any type that hasn't had that sense of profound feeling when you realise you're staring into the eye of an intelligent being and staring back. Yeah, I, I did once a very long time ago up on the Great Barrier Reef when uh, I was snorkelling and came across a humpback with a diving group up on Lady Musgrave Island, and I know that feeling. There is nothing like it, and especially... Uh, you know, when you look into the eye of any animal, if you know, even your dog is a really good example, there's this kind of bond that instantly happens. But when you're talking about an animal that's of that size, living in, in an ocean that is that, you know, the world's oceans, which, which don't have boundaries, <laughs> the, dolph- the whales don't know when they've crossed from one ocean into another, um, it's, it's extraordinary. It is an experience that you just, there's nothing else that can really um, to capture that. But you've done the next best thing by writing about it and putting the image in this book. We'll have to move on in a sec because we're just about out of time. Um, sure. I did, I did want to ask you about whether you and Robin had a favourite experience or encounter that you'd like to share with us, something really special that's in this book. Without a doubt, um, simultaneous multiple births of sperm whales mm. off the Azores. Yep. It was just extraordinary. Yeah, it, that that was one of my favourite parts as well. And, you know, you've got one uh, whale that's been born uh, and then all of a sudden this big gush of blood that you write about and wondering whether there's been an attack and then suddenly realise, no, there's actually another one that's been born and then another one. <laughs> Extraordinary stuff. Um, Wade, we're going to have to move on, but thank you so much for joining us. And I can only highly recommend, particularly as we're in this current age where people are spending a lot of time indoors, that you uh, get yourself a copy of this book. Um, It's called Looking for Whales. It's a hardback Australian Geographic publication. Um, It retails for $39.95 and it's available from Dimmicks and booksellers. But I guess you can probably pick this one up online if you need to as well. Yes, you can, and you can get it off our website as well, wade.com.
Thanks so much for joining us, Wade. And um, is there another publication in the planning? Uh, there is. Uh, we're looking at a, um, a book about Wakasabi National Park in Indonesia, so a completely different um, topic, but it's a classic example of economically sustainable conservation, and we'd like to do something about that. Yeah, brilliant. Well, look, let's stay in touch because um, once this one gets going, we'd love to speak with you again and uh, and, and really give that one some promotion as well because your work is just stunning. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Bron. Thank you very much. We'll let you go back to bed now. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye for now. Wade Hughes, Bye. all the way over in Perth. Thank you so much. Thanks to our other guests as well. Ellen Ariel in Townsville, Ray Kukumi here in Melbourne, um, AJ down on the Mornington Peninsula. Thank you so much, Brett. Yes, stay safe, keep your distance and stay home. And thank you, Kent, very much. And uh, with apologies to uh, Radiotherapy, we've eaten a little bit into their time. Stay tuned uh, for a wonderful hour of medical science coming up followed by Einstein and Go-Go at 11. In fact, stay tuned to Triple R all week. That's what I'm doing with occasional dips into, uh, you know, other media for an update on what's going on. But um, it, this station will keep you going and it will. it's just soul-nourishing. That's all I have to say. All right, stay safe, stay well, stay off the beaches. We'll catch you next week for more Marinara. Bye for now. Double eight one zero two seven Triple R. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.